John chapter 13 this morning. In John chapter 12, we have read the bitter account of Jesus' final days of public ministry. Many have turned away in disbelief. In chapter 13, we still have another nine chapters of John's gospel to work through, or 293 verses. In the first 12 chapters, we work through 586 verses. So if you do the math, 293 is exactly half of 586. So judging by the verse divisions, we are exactly two-thirds of the way through John's gospel. However, that does not mean that we still have a third of his ministry to work through. Actually, in less than 24 hours, Jesus will be dead. Clearly, John gives us a disproportionately large amount of information concerning Jesus' final night in Jerusalem. This is the night of Judas' betrayal, the Passover, the First Communion, and Jesus' formal ordination of 11 men to gospel ministry. John devotes five chapters to the revolutionary events that occur in that upper room. And the night begins with one of the most familiar scenes in all the Bible. A scene that is widely depicted in Christian art and probably, perhaps, the most applied passage in all the New Testament. But often, familiar scenes are inadequately understood. So do we really understand what we are about to read? John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. 
There are two major interpretations of this story that have circulated widely in the Christian community. Some, a minority, see this story as a symbolic illustration of our need for spiritual cleansing. This is the sacramental interpretation. Others see it as a call to humble service following the example of Christ. This is the moralistic interpretation. And frankly, it's not unusual for the Gospels to have more than one application of any one story. But having said that, I am not personally persuaded that foot washing should be elevated to a continual ordinance in the church or a sacrament in the church. We practice here two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And some Christians do indeed add a third or foot washing. Now, baptism was commanded by Jesus in the Great Commission, and it was also modeled by the apostles in the book of Acts and the epistles. Likewise, the Lord's Supper was commanded by Jesus and modeled by the apostles. However, Jesus never commanded us to wash each other's feet as a perpetual symbolic act, nor do we see it modeled by the early church. So for these reasons, I personally don't elevate this passage to one of a continual ordinance. But don't let this negate the symbolic lesson of the passage. Jesus does indeed point out the disciples' need for cleansing. That's true in verse 10. And in verse 11, he recognized that Judas was not clean. Further, the passage does indeed have considerable moralistic application. It does indeed call us to humble service for the cause of Christ. But I want to suggest to you there's a whole lot more going on in this passage than merely a kind of application to wash each other's feet. Sometimes we hasten to apply a passage before we really mine out its depths. And there are, in fact, two monumental truths that are embedded in this famous scene. In fact, one of them I'm going to have to come back to and really develop next week. All right, but let me give them to you. Here they are, and I'll work through both of them today. Two monumental truths. First of all, the first concerns love as the famous, I'm sorry, as the foundation for gospel mission. Love as the foundation for gospel mission. And I'll explain that today. The second concerns service as a prerequisite for exaltation. Service as a prerequisite for exaltation. So let's pursue the first. Love as the foundation for gospel mission. Verse 1 gives us the setting. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So just before the Passover meal, mere hours before Jesus would exit the world on a cross, Jesus stoops over to wash the disciples' feet. But don't miss the all-important term... John twice says he loved his disciples. 
The foot washing was merely an outward token of a much deeper reality. Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. But is that all there is to it? Okay, Jesus loved them right up to the end of his ministry. Great, we got it. Actually, no. John's emphasis on love is far more strategic than that. Let's actually situate the foot washing in the larger context of John's gospel, and I think this will make sense to you. In John chapter 2 through chapter 11, we work through seven distinct signs pointing out Jesus' true identity. He turned water to wine, healed the Roman official's son, cured the lame man at Bethesda, fed the 5,000, walked on water, opened the eyes of a man born blind, and finally resurrected Lazarus from the dead. Now, wouldn't you expect that all those signs, and of course he did many more than that, but all those signs, wouldn't those signs inspire his contemporaries to truly embrace him as the Messiah? Well, look at the bitter truth recorded in John 12 and verse 37. Here is the final verdict on Jesus' miracle-working ministry. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Well, wouldn't you expect the opposite? They still did not believe. Question. If Jesus' signs didn't convince the Jews, how will he deliver his gospel to the ends of the earth? The primary means Jesus now chooses to advance his agenda for the nations does not involve perpetual miracles. Chapter 13 actually introduces a seismic shift in Jesus' mission as he ordains 11 men to carry on his work. The hour of his return to the Father has come. So now what? The singular miracle-working prophet will return to the Father. But his mission will be carried forward by a community of believers. And that community will be facilitated in their mission by the coming of another comforter, whom he will soon introduce, and he will empower them for mission. And Jesus will unfold that mission on his final night, as well as, again, introducing the Comforter. And to be clear, Jesus will empower his disciples to perform sporadic miracles. And these miracles authenticate their apostolic office. But these miracles are not primary If you read the book of Acts, you know the number of miracles drops off precipitously. And why is that? Well, miracles do not tend to convince people. John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So we're tempted to believe that a grand display of miracles will just go out and convert the whole world. Well, friends, this is naive. Here's the greatest miracle worker of all, and they're about to crucify him. How then does Jesus intend to carry his mission forward into the world? 
Well, Jesus sets the tone by stooping down to wash the disciples' feet. And the singular word that explains this spontaneous act is love. Having loved them to the end. And all this is counterintuitive. But this is precisely how Jesus plans to launch His church. We spread the good news of Christ by humble service fueled by love. In this great symbolic act of foot washing, Jesus was actually showing the way forward for His disciples who are going to carry His gospel now to the ends of the earth. Now, just to confirm the centrality of love to their mission, and you might be still wondering about this, all right, Let, let's, let's take in two more references, all right? Would you just glance down now at John 13 and verse 34? Here Jesus is going to give a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you. Well, what is that? That you love one another and how much? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. The miracles? No. If you have love for one another. And I'll explain the new commandment in a future sermon, but clearly love is central to communicating to the world that we are Jesus' disciples. And now skip ahead to the end of the ordination service in John chapter 17. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, it's all part of this ordination service of the eleven. And how many times do you suppose the term love appears in John 13 through 17 in the upper room discourse? Thirty-four times. That's almost seven times per chapter. Now, all of John 17 is Jesus' ordination prayer. And let's interpret several lines of the prayer in light of Jesus' foot washing, which occurred earlier that same evening. Jesus says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, those immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me so clearly Jesus prays for the unity the oneness of his followers the unity of verse 21 is essential to global evangelism, that the world may believe, Jesus says, that you sent me. That's essential. Now, wouldn't you think the world would recognize Jesus, that he came from the Father if he just went out and performed extraordinary miracles? Well, shouldn't they recognize Jesus after he fed the 5,000 and opened blind eyes and resurrected Lazarus? That's what you would expect. Well, don't forget, 
the world is about to crucify him as a false messiah. How then will the world ever know that Jesus came from the Father? Answer, verse 21, the the unity of God's people, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that's the unity, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And friends, what is the bond that holds people together in unity? It's love. Verse 23, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Friends, it's, it's love that unites the Father and the Son. And it's love that unites us to God. Love is the distinguishing Christian attribute. Love is that great attribute that has united the Holy Trinity from all eternity. And now notice the last line of chapter 17. And it's further emphasis on love. I made, verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So unity expressed through love. That is the power of the Christian testimony that surpasses even miracles as a gospel witness to all the world. So when you put this all together, John's marvelous record of Jesus' final night in the upper room, which runs from chapter 13 and verse 1, right through chapter 17 and verse 26, begins and ends with love as the defining Christian attribute. So how on earth can we demonstrate Christian love? Well, here's an example. Jesus humbly serves the church by stooping over and washing their feet. If you think you need more miracles or dramatic charismatic gifts or great powers of oratory to convince the world, well, think again. Jesus emphasized love. So, let's keep the love of verse 26 in mind, and let's turn back now and reread the final words of verse 13, chapter 13 and verse 1. Here again, John says, he loved them to the end. So again, this whole section is bookended by love. Jesus loved them to the end. Jesus' love for his disciples was unfailing, unflinching, unhesitating, relentless. And curiously, John emphasized Jesus' love even before he mentions Judas Iscariot, his betrayer, in verse 2. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then following verse 2, John describes Jesus' selfless act of love, beginning with verse 3. Well, at first, verse 2 seems to just disrupt the flow of the text. In fact, we won't do this now, but the text actually reads more naturally if you just leave verse 2 out altogether. Just leave it out. Just read verse 1, and then right in the verse 3, this is the supreme illustration of Jesus' love. 
So why does John insert this detail concerning Judas Iscariot, whom the devil will use to betray Jesus? Why is he putting a little detail in there? Apparently, John wants us to know that Jesus washed even the feet of Judas Iscariot. It was with cleansed feet that Judas ran to the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. Now, on the one hand, verse 1 tells us Jesus loved his own and distinguishes them from the world, and Judas clearly belonged to the world. And it's true that late in the passage, Jesus did not give the new commandment until Judas was gone. Nevertheless, because of verse 2, it's clear Jesus could love and serve even the man who was about to betray him. This is astonishing love. And friends, have you ever just pondered the enigma of Judas? None of the disciples knew who would betray Jesus, and that's because Judas gave no clues. When Jesus sent the disciples out two by two and commissioned them to perform miracles, one of them must have traveled with Judas. And yet, in the upper room, no one ever pointed the finger at Judas and said, I knew it all along, you're the guy. And further, Jesus must have loved Judas and treated him as his own because he never gave the other eleven a clue that he knew that Judas would betray him. That's really astonishing. The disciples were baffled by the thought that one of them could betray him. And Jesus never let on. All that to say, Jesus was able to love and to serve even the most famous traitor in all of human history. This truly is astonishing love. And it's that kind of love that is foundational for Jesus' mission as this gospel now will go forward to all the nations. So friends, that is all part of the first truth. We got it now. The first truth concerns love as the foundation for gospel mission. So as we work into the Upper Room Discourse in the following weeks, let's just really keep in mind the centrality of love. And that brings us now then to verse 3, which communicates our second monumental truth. Here it is, service is a prerequisite for exaltation. Now the first half of verse 3 reads, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands. And it's very easy to read quickly over those words without stopping to ask, well, what do they mean? Well, friends, what do the words all things mean? If you looked it up in Greek, what do they mean? What do you think all things means? Norman, you're about to answer. I can see it. What does it mean? It means... All, all things, all right? It means what it says. It means all things. We are on the verge of Jesus' permanent exaltation when God is going to place a permanently incarnated man, the second Adam, in permanent authority over all things, over all creation. That's what this is referring to. Jesus, my friends, had all authority as God before the incarnation, 
But God intended through the incarnation to exalt a man to permanent authority, supreme authority over all things. And when exactly would that happen? Well, the second half of the verse says he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus was about to return to the Father with power over all things. And we know from several references, Matthew 28 in particular, that the resurrection of Jesus was a declaration of His authority over all heaven and over all the earth. Paul in Romans 1 tells us the resurrection was a declaration of His power. What kind of power? What power, Romans 8, to resurrect and to restore the whole created order, beginning with His own humanity. In Psalm 2, we know it was fulfilled at the resurrection when God commands the raging nations to bow down and to kiss the sun because he rules them with a rod of iron. In the upper room, Jesus knows that the long-awaited hour of his supreme exaltation as the second Adam lies out there on his immediate horizon. It's right there just beyond the cross. And that's why when he was tried before the Sanhedrin, later that same evening, Jesus exclaimed, remember this from Matthew? From now on, from this moment forth, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. What was he doing? He was claiming the imminent fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So friends, all of that is embedded in those two little words, all things. It's all right there in all things. So, if the inauguration of the emperor of the universe, the ruler of all nations, the lord of all principalities and powers just looms right there over the horizon, how would you expect Jesus to prepare himself to receive infinitely more power than any ruler in all human history? Infinitely more power than the brightest angels in heaven. Power to keep billions of glittering galaxies just spinning through space by His Word. How would you expect Him to receive all authority of the Godhead invested in a second Adam? How should Jesus prepare Himself for that kind of regal investment? Well, it's simple. Verse 4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The man appointed over all things washes the disciples' feet as a common servant. And Jesus' act of laying aside his outer garments indicates that this is no mere token foot washing. He really got into it. He gave himself unreservedly to the task. 
The Roman historian Suetonius tells us that slaves wrapped a short linen tunic around their waist before they served their masters at dining couches. As you know, it was customary for individuals to lie down while dining, and their feet would stretch out behind them, and the servants would come and cleanse their feet. And curiously, Jewish sources tell us that Jewish slaves were actually not required to wash the feet of others. With the Jews, they refused to be slaves, and the Gentiles, the Romans knew that if you try to get them to do this, they're just not going to behave, and it's not going to go well. So actually, the Jews themselves were not required to wash other people's feet. The practice was reserved for Gentile slaves. So for, Jew, for Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, to stoop over and engage in such a menial task, a task reserved only for Gentile slaves, what wasn't merely shocking. It was, in fact, culturally unacceptable. It was awkwardly embarrassing. And Peter's response in verse 6 points to the embarrassing nature of the event. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, we've had centuries to reflect on this event. And servant leadership is not a foreign concept to us. We've heard it preached often, but this actually was unthinkable to the Jews. One of the keys to really interpreting the passage accurately is actually verse 7. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. Peter, you do not understand. That's crucial. He doesn't understand. The disciples don't understand what he's doing. His actions were culturally unacceptable. They were awkward. They were embarrassing. They were unthinkable. They were unworthy of a Jewish Messiah. The disciples simply just lacked any kind of cultural framework in which Jesus' actions made any kind of sense. They had no categories for even processing The stunning turn of events. This sort of thing simply was not done. Now, this is the second time in two chapters where John admits the disciples did not understand what Jesus was doing. Earlier, when Jesus rode a humble donkey right at the city gates, John told us in chapter 16 his disciples did not understand these things at first. That wasn't chapter 16, was it? That was chapter 12, sorry. All right? They did not understand these things. Friends, we are often tempted to read the Gospels under the assumption that the disciples understood more than they did. But a closer reading tells a very different story. In fact, the closer that Jesus comes to his cross, the more confused his disciples become. And I want to go back to the synoptic and actually show you this. We'll not make further progress in John's Gospel today, but I think we can go back to the synoptics and really help understand what's happening here. Roughly nine months earlier, Jesus was far to the north of Jerusalem in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Matthew tells us about this in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus, on that occasion, was about nine months away from his crucifixion, and he has a private conversation with his disciples. And they understand, at least they think they understand at this point who he is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said. But then Jesus reveals a stunning new truth. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
In John chapter 13, we're now less than 24 hours away from that death of Jesus. And on the third day, be raised. So, nine months ago, he's revealed this truth to them. Do they understand? No. Peter objected, this will never happen to you. This is the same Peter exclaims in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. That's because Peter doesn't understand that the Messiah is also the suffering servant. He doesn't understand that yet. Peter did not expect Jesus to suffer and die, even if he did rise. That is actually beneath the dignity of a Jewish Messiah. Likewise, washing the disciples' feet was beneath the dignity of the Messiah. Well, do the disciples get it all figured out at this point? I mean, Jesus just told them really clearly, I'm going to go die. No. Shortly after leaving Caesarea Philippi, Jesus predicted his death a second time. Both Luke and Mark give us an account. Listen to Mark's account. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But Mark adds this note, but they did not understand the saying. Luke 18 gives us a third prediction of Jesus' death. Jesus is journeying now on the road to Jerusalem. He is coming for his final Passover. By my estimation, he is about two weeks out from his final night in Jerusalem. Luke 18 and verse 31 says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and we be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise. Well, surely they understand at this point, right? Not even close. Verse 34 says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. The disciples' friends simply don't get it. The cross, suffering for sins, dying and resurrecting, none of that made any sense to them. So if that's true, it's no wonder the disciples don't understand what Jesus is doing when he stoops over to wash their feet. If foot washing is difficult enough, what are they going to do the following day when their Messiah is suspended between heaven and earth as the suffering servant of Isaiah? What is really holding these men back from a full understanding? Well, I'll not answer that question exhaustively today. Well, let's go back along the road to Jerusalem once more. And let's just listen in to an argument that has been going on among the disciples for some time. In this case, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and puts a question to Jesus, but she pretty quickly fades in the background. The controversy really was between the disciples. Here's what Matthew says. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine, James and John, are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink of? 
And notice as they said to him, that's the disciples, plural. They put their mother up to this. They said to him, oh yeah, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant, not at the mom, at the brothers. So here's Jesus. He's moving swiftly toward a cruel death on a Roman cross. And his disciples want to know, well, who gets to be the greatest in your kingdom? Who gets those positions of honor? That's what we're concerned about. And James and John clearly manipulate their brother into asking Jesus on their behalf. And of course, the other ten were indignant with the disciples because they knew that they had put their mother up to it. Humans, by the way, have this natural concern for status. We all do. It's in the world all around us. Pomp and circumstance. We seek positions of honor. We invariably overestimate our own importance. We think we're greater than we really are. All right? It's the same with these disciples. You would not have done any differently than they did. You would have been just as bad as the rest of them, right? But it's also interesting just to note the timing of the disciples' question. It's inappropriate in the extreme. Jesus has just spoken twice of his suffering and death, and disciples are still concerned with their positions of honor in his kingdom? And do you think this controversy is going to go away? Not hardly. Let's actually turn to Luke chapter 22. And let's conclude this morning by looking at Luke's account of the same night. And let's let Jesus' words be the final application to us this morning. In Luke 22, this ugly controversy concerning greatness in the kingdom is going to turn up again. And when do you think it's going to show up again? Well, in Luke 22, we have a record of Jesus' final night in Jerusalem, in the upper room. And beginning with verse 14, we learn of Jesus' spontaneous transformation of the Passover meal into the institution of the Lord's Supper. So we're in the same room that we're in in John chapter 13. But remember what Jesus said in John 13. After washing the disciples' feet, he said, What I am doing you do not understand now. You don't understand this, but afterward you will. Well, why didn't they understand Jesus' actions? What's holding them back? There are probably many things, but what's really holding them back? I want to suggest to you one thing. Look at what else was going on the very same night. Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Here's Jesus washing their feet, and they're still having the same old argument they had two weeks earlier on the road to Jerusalem. You ever get annoyed by children in the back seat arguing all the way, you know, down the road when you're driving 10 hours to the next destination, right? What about grown men? Keeping up the argument for two weeks on end. Which is the greatest? Who gets the highest position? And how will Jesus respond? Of course, in John's Gospel, he washes their feet. But Luke is going to fill out the picture just a bit. And he's going to let us know that Jesus also issued a verbal rebuke. And let's let this really be instructive for us. Verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, 
Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? We know the disciples answered that question, but who is the greater? It is not the one who reclines at table. Is it not the one who reclines at table? That's what you would expect. It's a rhetorical question. But Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. And friends, this is Jesus' answer to all who would make themselves great. It's Jesus' answer to those who think that they really deserve those high positions of honor. This is a complete reorientation of their expectations. Who is the greatest? Well, how about the one who is on the verge of receiving all authority over all nations forevermore and forevermore? In Jesus' mind, service was a prerequisite for exaltation. The high king of heaven, he says, is among you as one who serves. So why do I really need to apply this any further? And I was thinking this last week about the application of the passage. And then it just occurred to me, the truth is the application. You know, sometimes you uncover the truth and you apply it. In this case, the truth is the application. What's the truth? Here's the truth. Love is the foundation for gospel mission. And service is Jesus' prerequisite for exaltation. That's the truth, and that's the application. So let's close with verse 26. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for this delightful scene that we have in the upper room. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that we, too, would not have understood him or his actions. We, too, would have failed him. But we thank you, Lord, that he never failed us. We thank you, Lord, that he on the verge of receiving all authority, modeled servanthood. We thank you, Lord, that he carried this servanthood through all the way to the bitter hours of the cross. And he recognized himself to be the suffering servant of Isaiah. Lord, he must have read those words as a young man, as a boy, and have come to understand that they referred to him. And to think of how much of his ministry, Lord, that cross just loomed over his horizon, and yet unflinchingly, he went to that cross in service for us and for our salvation. So we just want to pause Give thanks to him, and we pray, Lord, that you might help us to do a little better job this week of modeling his love and his service to others. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.